space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Welcome to Wild Weasel number 12. Or, if you listened before, then welcome back. I had the pleasure of having Soren Johnson visit recently, and we played two games of Brian Train's Colonial Twilight, first the endgame scenario and then the full campaign. I lost both. But I was glad to have the designer of one type of game see the current state-of-the-art of design in another type of game. I'm still hoping to get a podcast out of that. We'll see. Um, as older news, I finished my last video about the Battle of Bien Bien Phu. I think most of you know that already. And I hope you've taken the time to check it out on wargamespace.com under videos. That's put me in the position of not having any video projects currently under production, which is different. Given that it took me two and a half years to produce a four-video series that's a little over two hours long, and, uh, by the way, was originally envisioned as one 40-minute video comparing all the games. <laughs> so, yeah. Given that, I'm hesitant to make another commitment like the one I made with Yin Bian Fu, and I think the next project will be a one-off, covering either a single game or a single subject with brief looks at multiple games all within the same video. But I also thought of doing something like an opening move analysis in the context of historical factors, which might give some players uh, an idea of how to play the game while still covering the historical element that I love so much. I'm wondering if that would be interesting to anyone. Uh, let me know. Someone even suggested I do an unboxing video, but since I don't really get the appeal of those, I'm not sure I could capture what people like about them. If you have any suggestions for me on this, uh, please put them in the comment section. Now, I made a comment on Twitter a while back that I wanted to follow up here. Uh, it was in reaction to a review of War in the West, which is that the word review seems to be getting somewhat debased to where it's turning into a synonym for description, where review is just a listing of components, turn sequence, the mechanics, and some one-sentence wrap-up that says something like, I liked it, or comments on whether it's, quote, worth the money, end quote, which seems like an impossible thing to determine. Um, but there isn't any mystery as to why this is, because actually analyzing games is hard. I'm always on the lookout for people making the effort to really dig into why games work the way they do and how designs or themes hold together or don't, uh, which is why a couple of years ago I backed Marco Arnaudo's uh, YouTube channel Kickstarter with the backer reward of a 15 to 30 minute wargaming video based on theme or mechanics. Um, I'm still hoping to have Marco do a video on the variable activation mechanic, but I can see why he still hasn't done this, um, because it takes a long time. Certainly longer than the single evening that I think I heard Marco say uh, is sufficient for his regular videos. Um, planning and then executing analysis is incredibly time consuming, so... I get why people take description and substitute it instead. It just annoys me that it gets called a review. That's enough complaining. We have a great talk with an excellent guest coming up, and then I go off on block games. But first, the news.
I'll start right off with the GMT lineup, since the last update email came out about 10 days ago, and I usually get to them last anyway. You've probably already read it, right? Yeah, so I'll hit the highlights. Um, but I will note that they have charged for Holland 44, and we'll be getting that very soon, I hope. I love Mark Simonich's games. Uh, I'm thinking of looking at Market Garden games in a future video series with Hell's Highway, Highway to the Reich, Monty's Gamble, Airbridge to Victory. Hmm. That sounds like a long project. Add Holland 44 to that, and we have five games? Hmm. Okay. Two new additions to the P500 list are Fast Action Battles Crusader. Yeah, boughtened. And Plains Indian Wars. Boughtened as well. One comment I saw in the area map for Plains Indians Wars was something like, does it have to be so abstract? And I have to say, I kind of get the desire to see the American Great Plains on a hex-by-hex -hex scale with little cavalry and Indians running around on them. But I sure wouldn't want the anti-area movement movement, um, I don't know, let's call them anti-ma, to get started again. We saw enough of that 40 years ago. What else? Pendragon set for October. September for Next War Poland. December for Hitler's Reich. Oh yeah, so here's the thing with Hitler's Reich. I love the idea of a quick-playing card game at a large scale. But the designers are Mark McLaughlin and Fred Schachter, and frankly, Wellington and Kutuzov, those are the two of the whammiest whammy card games I've ever played. And I didn't really think Napoleon's Wars worked too well, at least not for me. So we'll see. But is it on my P500 order list? <laughs> of course. What about November? Well, At Any Cost is a game about Metz 1870, which I'm buying basically just because it's designed by Hermann Lutmann, who designed one of my favorite solitaire games ever in magnificent style. He also designed the solitaire game Spoiled Victory about Dunkirk. At Any Cost is about the Franco-Prussian War, and before you tune me out, go to the short article Hermann Lutmann wrote about his design called The Other Forgotten War, which I've linked on the podcast page. Beautiful map, 35 bucks. Herman Lippmann, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, Herman has actually already designed a Mars Latour game called Duel of Eagles, which is available from White Dog Games. So I'm interested to see what his new take on this uh, situation is. Oh, and of course, Mark Herman, Fort Sumter, the Secession Crisis, it's already busted through its P500 uh, threshold. So we'll be seeing that at some point. I think it's going to be 2018. Over at Avalanche Press, uh, they're selling a new set of the game Alamein. And I say new set because it isn't a new edition, and it isn't even a reprint. So what do I mean by this? Well, let's just see what they say on their own page. So this is a quote. Early this century, the old Avalanche Press took a stab at giant games and produced Alamein, a massive game of the Alamein battles in late 1942. It finally sold out when we ran out of its giant double-sized box and faded into the sunset. The other color parts, maps, playing pieces, remained in storage, but scattered throughout the warehouse. When we moved some of the warehouse stock a few months ago, I took pains to collect all the Alamein parts together, and as I suspected, we had enough to justify printing some more black and white components and a new box wrap for our new style boxes. The game, just barely, will fit inside. Alamein's new edition is identical to the old edition, except for the nice new box. Okay, except that the price is $150 plus shipping. I, on the other hand, went out to the Board Game Geek Marketplace and saw old editions selling for significantly less than this. In fact, I picked up a mint, unpunched copy of the old edition for 44 bucks, plus shipping, of course. 
But since the game they're selling is really just old parts they had lying around, plus a new box they printed, the secondary market stuff is really, I mean, exactly the same product, minus the new box, right? And on BoardGameGeek right now, you can get a new copy of Alamein for 60 bucks, And there's a like new copy for $75. Now, there's more of these. These were all listed a while ago, like a couple of years at least. But I'll bet some are still available. And Avalanche games tend to sell at a secondary market discount. Anyway, I'm digging through the Alamein rules, and we'll report back to you. In the more traditional reprint category, Compass Games will be publishing a new Red Star White Eagle. And this is a game originally published by Game Designers Workshop, designed by David Williams, and first published in 1979. It's about the Russo-Polish War, and I really like it. The Compass version sounds like it's primarily an aesthetic upgrade, which is just fine with me, although I do have a soft spot for that old GDW artwork. Still, this is good. Uh, Pre-order price is $57 and it's expected in December. So you can reserve that month for At Any Cost and Red Star White Eagle. By the way, Red Star White Eagle is also a great book by Norman Davies. You can get that on Amazon. Europa Simulazioni has a game in pre-order called La Guerra di Gradisca, 1615-1617. It's notable for having what appears to be, from the website, looks like a great map, very much in the style of Campaigns of King David, which I loved. The counters are period style, too. Uh, I don't know anything about the campaign itself, but I'm sure you can learn a lot about it from the game. You can find that at italianwars.net. Vento Nuovo Games, the other Italian game publisher that gets mentioned on this podcast, shipped Bloody Monday, Napoleon at the Gates of Moscow, just yesterday, uh, which was August 29th. That's very shortly after the Kickstarter completed, and according to them, is two months ahead of schedule, which is pretty impressive if that's true. You can order it for them uh, for, for 80 euros by going to the link I have on the podcast page, or you can go to ventonuovo.net and try to get through their menu system. You know, I, I really don't understand website design these days. I don't know what people are thinking. Dan Versen Games has a Kickstarter for Pavlov's House running right now, which is a solitaire game about the famous Soviet strong point uh, that was famous for its resistance during the Battle of Stalingrad. The game has a solo mode and then a cooperative mode, and then I think there's even a versus mode. Uh, But the Kickstarter has already made its goal, so now the campaign is all about the dreaded stretch goals. It has about three weeks to run, and you can find the link to that on the podcast page. Brian Train. (laughs) He has even more stuff out now. I feel like I'm running the Brian Train monthly news series sometimes. First, Tupamaro is available for pre-order from One Small Step Games for $19.95 plus shipping. I think I might have mentioned this before. It's a folio game about the counterinsurgency fought in Montevideo, Uruguay in the 1970s. It uses a map that's somewhat different from Brian's standard four-box system. But speaking of the four-box system, if you were looking for Brian's Algeria folio game, uh, folio game, it was not available before from One Small Step. They had sold out uh, temporarily, but it's now available from them. You can go and buy it. And interestingly, Brian has a new game or I should say, an update of his old game, Konarmia, which was uh, originally published by Microgame Design Group, and that's about the Russo-Polish War. Yeah, again, hey? Which is now published as Red Horde, and it's on sale. It's for sale and on sale. Uh, Six bucks off, I think it's originally priced at $30. It's now on sale for $24 from Mark Walker's Tiny Battle Publishing. And you can find the links to that on the podcast page, or just search for Tiny Battle uh, Red Horde. 
And Brian also tells me that he has the companion game to Conarmia, which was originally published as Frycore, also through Microgame Design Group. He has this revised and pretty much ready to submit to a publisher or close to that state. So you're going to be able to put that together with Red Horde and fight communism in 1920 in Central Europe at some point. Uh, I may know more specific information about Price and Publisher by the time of the next podcast. And I have a link to that. Now, lots of stuff at High Flying Dice, including two new games set in the 1790s. And the first is entitled A Dark and Bloody Battleground and pits the early Americans, fresh from their successful revolution, against the Miami Indians in the old Northwest Territory. It seems like the Americans tried to cross a river and got thrashed for their trouble. The Maumee River, to be exact. I'm not familiar with the battle, but Paul Rohrbaugh wants to sell you a game about it for $11.95 plus shipping, $5 more if you want mounted counters. There are also special, uh, special cards that you can buy. Uh, I think Paul's games generally use a card deck, so you can use a, s- a standard set of playing cards. I think that you can go to the website to make sure, but uh, he has special cards print for this. You buy those for uh, additional uh, cost. Now, that's from... 1790. The second game is set a year later in 1791 and called St. Clair's Folly. It's again about early Americans fighting Indians. This time it's on the Wabash River. Um, Both these were defeats for the Americans, by the way. Very interesting. And also this one is 1195. Now, High Flying Dice likes these uh, temporally adjacent designs, let's call them, uh, having done Fortunate Sons and Bad Moon Rising about Vietnam in March 1970. Um, Those other two, the, the Two Revolutionary War or post-Revolutionary War games I mentioned are just his standard uh, 1195 kind of print-on-demand games, but he has a professional edition that uh, runs games like Fortunate Sons and Bad Moon Rising. I think I've told people in the past that these were boxed games, but I'm I'm informed by a listener that the professional editions are not necessarily boxed. Um, My listener tells me that he ordered Bloody Dawns and was disappointed to find the game was not a boxed game, even though it cost $45. So um, please take note of that, and uh, thanks for the information. You can get more information about those games at hfdgames.com. Kevin Zucker's Operational Studies Group has a summer sale going on with 20% off all books and games in print. That only lasts until August 31st, though, which as of this recording, will be tomorrow. So if you listen to this the day it comes out, you'll still have time. If you've been looking at Napoleon's Quagmire but haven't pulled the trigger, here's a chance to get it for $87. I really think they should reprint Highway to the Kremlin, but that's just my opinion. Go to napoleongames.com. And on the convention front, Harold Buchanan is organizing Historicon in San Diego. That'll be at the Shriner Center and is on November 10th, 11th, and 12th. Um, I'd really love to go to this. I don't think I can make it as that's a bad work month for me. I don't, I don't even get Thanksgiving Day off. But if you're able to go, I urge you to stop by and play some games. And there's a link to, link to it at um, the podcast page. It's www.sdhist.com. So S-D-H-I-S-T.com. And like I said, there's a link to it on the podcast page. If you're anywhere in the area, I encourage you to go. And that's the news. So today I have my first repeat guest, although I guess 
he was kind of a repeat guest before when he talked with Volko. Anyway, this is Mark Herman. He's designed a couple of board games, I think. Uh, Mark, is that right? Um, yeah, a yeah. few. Yeah. yeah, okay. Welcome to the show again. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm talking to you because you revealed something uh, on Twitter a while back, not too long ago, maybe a week and a half before this conversation, where you said that you were working on an expansion to Fire in the Lake uh, called The Fall of Saigon. Is that true? Absolutely true. Oh, my. Well, I want to know why you would do such a thing, because that sounds like you're adulterating your perfect design that you had out there, where you only took the game to 1973 because you wanted the game to run concurrently with the U.S., and once the U.S. Uh, left, then that was the sort of end of the game, right? And now you're going to take it all the way through 1975. So what what, what kind of... What kind of um, shenanigans are you trying to pull with us here well you know well you know actually it's funny uh though we never talked about it much in public but volko and i had it in our minds to do an expansion to take it to 75 like almost as soon as fire and lake was i think it was in production we were already talking about you know someday we'll do the the last two years as an expansion and so that was always on the table and I've been sort of in the background. You know, I'm doing a lot of things. You know, you saw Pericles came out, yep. and uh, you know, I was doing. I did South Pacific and Plan Orange, and you know, I've been doing things. I mean, it's not like I haven't been doing anything, but I've been in the background, you know, researching. Because I, to be quite frank, although I know a lot about the Vietnam War, and I knew a lot about the evacuation, but I didn't know a lot about. I mean, I knew a lot, but not enough that I was going to do a game on the last two years. I just really needed to ramp up my knowledge base. So I've been reading, and I've actually gotten to the point now where I've got, uh, I don't know, I guess it's like, I just looked at my book, I've got like 45 events. I don't know that I'm going to need many more. Like, I think it'll be around 60 events. So, I'm, you know, almost done with the events, you know, get, figuring out the events, which is like really the hard part right. with these things. But what's going to be interesting about this is this is going to be a two-player game, and it was always going to be a two-player game. It's going to be the Arvin versus the NDA. And one of the things early on, uh, we, you know, I, Volko and I was talking about this, and I said, I don't know if it's a four-player game, and, and that's when Brian Train, you know, just came out with uh, Colonial Twilight, which Absolutely. is awesome, by the way. Yeah, I, I played uh, I got it right game. here next to me on the table, and mm -hmm. I've been playing, you know, I played it a little bit when it was in playtest, and I really liked it, but I saw the two-player, um, you know, his diagram, which really kind of boils down that whole thing to a really cool little mechanic. The initiative matrix, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, I saw that at a uh, you know, uh, GMT West, the only one I've ever been to, and I played it there with uh, Hawkeye and uh, saw the thing, and I talked to Volko there, and so we decided that we would use that. So I've been, that's always been the, so I've always, I've been working with the game and that mechanic from before Colonial Twilight was done, you know, to keep it within, you know, Volko's got this series right. configuration management thing, so this is what we're going to do. And it works perfectly, actually. And, um, and so, uh, in fact, I talked to Volko about this literally yesterday because uh, I'm, on, you know, I'm up in uh, Cape Cod, is where I do a lot of work, and it's kind of quiet. It's really nice. Oh, nice. So um, the basic idea is is that um, you know there'll be it'll have two modes, right? The first mode is that you know you set this thing up, you know, you have fire in the lake. It's an expansion. It will have some new wood. In other words, one of the things that I'm adding into the expansion is. Um, is mechanized forces, you know, that a lot of the, um, you know, we're actually going to explicitly have tanks, you know, so that you're going to have cubes, and 
we're, we're looking at some different kind of pieces, but there's like this kind of wedge piece that uh, Volko that he's been using for knights in a medieval game. Oh. So let's just say there'll be these wedge wood pieces that'll be the so that you'll see this conversion and building of the mechanized forces for the NVA, and of course the um, the Arvin actually have armor also, so they'll also be shown as explicitly as armor pieces, um, and so we're going to have this sort of uh, two year. Um, turn and the and the thing that flips it um you know like you know how you have the propaganda cards and now when we did fire in the lake we had coup cards right right so two is the president throughout this entire period but the it's only got one um you know it's only got one uh propaganda card but that's watergate because one of the big turning points in this period believe it or not from the nva side and again i've been reading their official history and all this is that when nixon was you know resigned they were afraid of him, actually, and they didn't. They weren't afraid of Ford, and they were cutting back, you know, on the, um, you know, the munitions budget went from a billion to seven hundred million, and there's a whole bunch of stuff with the, how the aid was starting to evaporate and maintenance problems for the Arvin, and so that's sort of the turning point that gets you from uh, into the last, uh, you know, the last year of the war when the offensive started. And the, the NVA didn't think they were going to win the war in 75. They thought it was going to take them to 76 and 77. So they were actually surprised by the collapse themselves. And so the game will sort of use that as, you know, the, the piece of, you know, did the Arvin win or lose the game is, you know, did they not lose by 75? You know, did, were they able to sustain themselves uh, from the Paris Peace Accords through the offensive and okay. all that? Now tell me this. So the way you're describing it, it's a two-player game, so this is a is this a standalone expansion? Yes, I mean, well, then that, remember I said it was two modes. So the the conversation that Volko and I had yesterday um, was, you know, we were exploring whether it could be a, also be a you know like you go through the game and actually continue in four player mode, but you know, this is where you know we we sort of came to a, a consensus pretty quickly is the, the the historical reality is is that the the the, the um, the uh, you know the uh, VC in um, in Fire in the Lake were actually wrecked after '68. I mean right. they were really trashed, and they were then it's subsumed under the command of the North. I mean that that's pretty clear. You know my original thesis of the four sides is based on before '68. After Tet, there is really no structure. You know they were really wrecked after Tet, and so right. it really did become a Northern show after that. Um, you know, after the key leadership was all wiped out. Mm -hmm. So what happens in the game is if you're playing the campaign game in Fire in the Lake and you get to this end game point, we will have a way for you to convert. You basically go through the Paris Peace Talks. So there's like a Paris Peace Talks procedure mm. where you convert from four-player mode into two-player mode based on the board position. Interesting. So two people have to go home for the night. That's it. Thanks, uh, you lose. You know, the answer is... is you know, it is standalone, so let's be clear, that's the main mode. But for the guys who, you know, they could play it as a team, you know, you could also say that the forces that are in this part of the map, you know, I'll, I'll come up with a way that the four players could stay in the game, mm -hmm. you know, but they'll do, they'll be like regional commanders now. They won't be, you know, they won't be, um, it won't be a four-player game. It'll be a two-player, two-team game, if two-player, two-team game, if you know what I'm trying to say. Yep. Um, where they'll have regional responsibility. So, yeah, any the the guerrillas in the south will be under one guy's command, but they'll be still be NVA at this point, and um, they'll they'll share a victory if that's what they're doing. But the, the main mode is it is a standalone two-player game, which I think will be a very um, 
you know, I, I, one of the things about uh, any four-player game, when you're, especially if you're using bots, is, you know, you've got to go through three, you know, non-players to get back to yourself, if you know what I'm saying. Right. Um, so two-player works better solitaire, so I think the solitaire mode for it is going to be really good because it's a, it's a two-player solitaire game now. Um, so that's kind of how – in fact, when I did Pericles, one of the things I did do was – the the team that you're not has a very abbreviated you know it's called I call it Procedus after the Spartan general but the point is is that it's a very abbreviated you don't do the whole same procedure for the other side that's both bots you know what I'm saying right I I abbreviate that because that's not you know that interesting at that point you're just trying to get to the war at that point right so in the same way in Fall of Saigon you know the two player thing will make the uh, solitaire much easier interesting so what are the other uh, design concerns or considerations from the four-player to the two-player in terms of this specific historical situation? Well, so the big thing, you know, if you read the histories, is that, you know, the, the, the big victory for the NDA and the negotiations was the U.S. leaves and they get to keep their forces in the South. Mm-hmm. That was always, you know, and, you know, two, in fact, two even, you know, went out to San Clemente and he said, you know, what are you, you know, what, what are we doing here? And, you know, so all of that was a problem a major problem that they never got around. You know, and the mm-hmm. coalition government that was supposed to happen never happened, you know, and people blamed each other. You know, it's a typical thing. But right. but when you really get into the official history, they were never going to – it was always just an interregnum to get rid of the U.S. so they could finish this thing off. Sure. And and so that's kind of, you know, what is going on in the game. You know, it's a history game. And so, um, you know, so this – you know, as you go – so, again, if you're playing in standalone mode – you're going to start with the historical position after the Paris Peace Talks. Mm-hmm. And then you're just going to play, you know, Arvin versus NVA for the, uh, for the crown. Uh, if you're playing the, the, the whole campaign game, you'll have a Paris Peace Talks interregnum procedure to flip you into this two-player mode, mm-hmm. or what I'll call a two-team mode, okay. and then you'll go on from there. Now, here's the other question. You have mm-hmm. a real question of pacing here, right? Because the, the, the pace of operations after 1973 was different from the pace, pace of operations before 1973, and you're also adding armor, which didn't doesn't really exist. I mean, it doesn't really exist. It doesn't exist. It's abstracted into the cubes in the mm-hmm. pre-1973 period. So... How, how well, also, there wasn't, but, but the, well, first off, a couple things. Uh, yeah. The first thing is that the amount of armor uh, was very minimal. I mean, it, for the U.S., definitely had tanks. I mean, not, and we give them that capability. So you, you have to think of every U.S. cube in is really, you know, they're either helicoptered in or they're heavier. You know, they've got right. they got artillery. You know, they're more of a cross section. Mm-hmm. The Arvin, we have the. Um, the armored cavalry capability, which gives them sort of that the ability to get those six cubes together and bounce them around, mm-hmm. like you know, uh, you know, little uh, pa- you know, Panzer Group, right. which is kind of how the the mechanized will kind of work. You know, it'll have sort of the very um, the line of communication is going to become more interesting because the armor kind of moves down the roads, you know, until they run into something. Mm-hmm. So you're going to need to have better protection on on the LOCs in this than before, and. And it's going to be a little bit of a modification on some, you know, that's going to have a new action card, which will be similar, but the assault uh, stuff is going to be a little bit different, you know, because of the armor and you know, we're going to have a little bit more detail on the combat piece. So does that change uh, the way the game is going to play early on because you, because of the anticipation of this sort of change in, in combat? Well, if you're going to play the whole campaign, you know, if you're going to play the campaign game with the knowledge that you're going to go into this last phase, 
that assumes that the game doesn't end earlier, right? Right. You know that you didn't somebody didn't win the thing outright sure. at the end of those other rounds. Mm-hmm. So this would be even under those circumstances, you wouldn't always get into this module anyway. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of games not go go the distance uh, in Fire in the Lake. Right. So you're uh, basically saying that the game the, the, where the game would be decided on the final victory assessment, you you no longer have that tiebreaker procedure. You just keep going. Yeah. Yeah, you just keep going at that point after you've sort of, whoops, after you've sort of converted um, everything, you know, into this two-player mode. Because when we looked at it, you know, it, trying to keep it in four-player mode uh, for the last two, just not historical. Not so, and so you, I always want to focus on the history. And so we, we always looked at this expansion as a standalone, and that's really how I'm looking at it. Yeah. Now we're going to, now obviously we're going to backward compatible it into the, you know, the normal campaign game, because that, that'll just be fun. But right. I don't see that as being the main mode for this. The, the main mode for this is if you have Fire in the Lake and you play this piece of it, it's like getting a new game. Uh, it'll, it'll play differently in the sense that uh, it's two-player, right? So you're going to have that Colonial Twilight two-player uh, yep. mechanic. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be kind of interesting, and the events are going to be are really – it's a period a lot of people don't know a lot about, so sure. I think it's nothing else is going to be like – Wow, I didn't know that happened, and this happened, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So now you made reference to sixty events. Does that mean that uh, you'll have basically? I mean, that's still that's a full game, right? I mean, if if it's twelve cards. Oh yeah. Per... If I used all the co- well, you've got remember you, the, the number I was actually shoot, I said sixty. You know, just off the top of my head, forty-eight is the amount we have. I think in each of the. Um, you know, each of the the, the big the longer periods have 48 cards, and you only use 36 of them, if mm-hmm. I recall correctly. So that's probably the right math. But I might put 16, and you'll still play with 36. You know, it's like I see. Uh, it's it's always, you know, it's a little bit more work for me to balance it based on some weird die rolls. But one of the interesting things is that it, that I don't have to worry about this time is when I was doing this for, you know, when Vulcan and I were doing this for Fire in the Lake, because of the four. You know, you have to balance it in the fact that, you know, who's first, second, third, fourth eligible out of four is a trickier balance point than when every card is, you're going to play on every single card. It actually makes it easier. Right. So you don't have the situation like, oh, that event's not in here, or or for whatever, because of a bad draw, you've got more like N. Diego's first events or all the N. Diego's first events and none of the American go first events, which is, I think, mathematically impossible, but you can have a lower proportion of who goes first on various cards can occur out of a 36 out of 48 draw. Right. When you, I when, do, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you, you understand what I'm saying. And it was Absolutely. a lot of math to kind of get to a point where I said, okay, this is probably okay. That's why we ended up with 48, by the way. That was the, the number, that was the magic number mm-hmm. where even if you got a bad draw, it wasn't too bad. You know, like you wouldn't get something really stupid. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. So how far out are we on this then? Um, oh, gosh. You know, well, there's a couple of problems, you know, from timing-wise. Is I'm at the point now where I'm actually putting a prototype together. You know, mm-hmm. that's how I know that this is real because I've got mm-hmm. – I, I got enough events and mm-hmm. I've got map and I got, you know, got, I got a setup. You know how it is. So when I yeah. get to that point, I'm probably – you know, weeks away from a prototype, and then I'll roll it out at you know probably uh, my the gaming you know J.R. Tracy's gaming group in New Fun York. City. Yep. Yeah, Fun City. Uh, the Fun City t- uh, tribe will probably get a look at it. Um, you know, sometime in 
you know, at this point with the summer right running around, uh, probably September, they'll mm-hmm. start to see something. I'll get it on the table. You'll see pictures of it and all mm-hmm. that. But you know what the map looks like. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's going to be uh, – it should be should be fun. So October and, 1st, you're saying, it will have a pro- finished product. Yeah. Yeah. No, finished product, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> certainly a playable one okay. uh, by then for sure. And then, I was kidding, but yeah, you know, you I get the P, I think the P500 will be sort of a um, – you know, no, I'm not worried about the P500. No, nobody's worried about the P500 for this. Yeah, so so it'll P500, but then, you know, so I'm thinking that if all went really well, and they got a lot of product, you know, pile, you know, they got a lot of product coming through. That's always, you know, the thing. I would say, you know, maybe, you know, a year later, you might see it in third or fourth quarter of next year. Okay, would be probably not a crazy, you know, but I, but of course, I'm, that's me talking out of my ear here. Right. I don't know. Um, you know, what the other schedule and things running. You know, i got Fort Sumter. Um, you know, every, once I get a game over the P500 and it's done, I'm, I'm always like, you know, come on, isn't there a slot somewhere? Yeah, right, <laughs> to, right. You know, yeah. it's part of the game, right? Yeah, I understand. But now, does that mean that you have to, that people will be buying a second map? No. No, it's an expansion. So ah. you will not need, you know, whatever, if you, you, you I, as far as I know right now, you need to have you you need to own fire in the lake. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So it's it is a true that's expansion. Most of the wood, that's where most of the woods coming from. That's okay. where the maps Understood. coming from. Dice and all that kind of jazz. I see. What you're going to get here is going to be. I mean, I, I'm assuming it'll be in a box mm-hmm. or whatever. But it's going to have um, obviously uh, 48 to 60. Well, it'll have more than 48 cards just because of the coup card kind of inserts and all that. Right. But you know, let's call it 60 cards just right. for, for for grins right now. Right. Um, you're going to have uh, some amount of wood, not not a set of full set of wood, but this is where the you know the new pieces will come in. Mm-hmm. You know the armor pieces will will be in there, and um, you'll get new. Um, oh, and and what you will get though is that goes back to, retrofits back to the original game. Is mm-hmm. they're redoing. Uh, Volko's got some new solitaire format that he likes. Mm-hmm. That you know. So that, that you know his solitaire team is really they got you know Orhan is his name I think. Yes. Um, he um, he's he's got a new method. They got some new graphics. So the, all the charts, all, all the uh, solitaire charts for the original game and for the expansion will be, you know, in there. I got it. Uh, obviously, there'll be a rule book of some kind, historical notes, obviously. So it's yeah. gonna it's gonna be a meaty package from an expansion point of view. But you won't have a board, at least. You know, you'd have to buy a board separately if you wanted mm-hmm. to just play the standalone. But you wouldn't have all the wood, so you got really it. gonna need fire in the lake. Okay, that's fair enough. Well, yeah. that's uh, that's something that I'm really looking forward to. So uh, you better get to work. I know on you're that. a very big Vietnam fan. Yeah, I I, I love the I love the period. Um, I just saw Ken Burns uh, discuss his yeah, new documentary. It's coming out. Excited about that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it looks I, boy, I, I, it looks good. Oh, they they showed us like an hour of uh, of clips. They are spectacular. Also, they he has the advantage. You know, when he did the you know the same as Civil War, which is of course spectacular. Mm-hmm. There was nobody to talk to other than right. Shelby Foote, right? Right. They had a couple of authors <laughs> right, and famous right, historians right. Yeah. Uh, to talk to. But now, I mean, I have I have multiple, you know, guys I work with my whole career in mm-hmm. uh, D.C. Uh, you know, they're all Vietnam veterans, right? Although not, just, the, go- not the higher up guys, right? Because they're all dead. Um, no, that's not true. I mean, I you know, in fact, a lot of the cards and I mean, I, seriously, a lot of the cards in Fire in the Lake are the stories. Some of them are stories of my friends. You know, uh, you well, know, Van Van uh, General. Dead. Blaze Wong's dead. Fam Van Dong's oh, dead. Oh, yeah. Coach you're, you're talking about the – well, well, you know, but, you know, Giap was uh, – you know, in fact, uh, my friend John Prados actually got to interview Giap yeah. near the very end of his life. You yeah, know? yeah, so, yeah. 
but oh. um, what I'm talking about when people do interview, I'm talking. You could talk to a lot of soldiers. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah I understand that. Yeah, you could talk, definitely talk to a lot of soldiers. What I'm saying is that you know Westmoreland, no. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, Bob you know, McNamara, McNamara, no. McNamara, that's what, that's what I mean know, by by the top Palmer, guys, right? All those guys are passed away. Yeah, all right. the senior guys are right. obviously dead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but. Um, but you do have a lot of the soldiers to talk to. So, and, and, you know, the home front people, you know, the, they, a lot of the famous protesters are still alive. If yeah. he wants to you know, bring that into it, who knows what he's got going. Yeah. By the oh, way, did you see the film, which was very – one of the things that really inspired me is um, the Kennedy kid. Um, she did a um, – uh, and, and it was the thing that I actually said, oh, because that needs to be the title, was uh-huh. this um, a documentary on the fall of Saigon. You know, did you see that documentary? No, I have not. Oh, you need to see this. This is uh, – I saw it actually where she was – a friend of mine You said, hey, you want to go to this premiere of this new documentary on the fall of Saigon? It's about it's, – it's under 90 minutes. It's like 80 minutes or 70 minutes or whatever it is. And um, it's one of the Kennedy girls, and I don't remember which – it's not, you know, Carolyn, but it's one of the – she's a producer, and the director was there. And I saw it in New York in a, you know, small theater, but it was – Really, really excellent. You should go look it up. It's called Fall of Saigon, so it's an easy title for you to remember. But I, I really endorse that. It's a spectacular. I'm going to try to work some of that stuff in there. But that's really more about the very end, the evacuation, which is not, you know, that's the end of the game. So maybe there'll be a card. But beyond that, it won't be much. Well, but it's still worth seeing. It's really interesting. Is it called Last Days in Vietnam? That's yes, by Rory yes, yes, Kennedy. That, yeah, yeah, that's the one. That's, a, that's, that's, that's I, I RFK's daughter. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, I knew it was one of the. I didn't remember which one it was, but yeah. uh, she was very, uh, she was very nice, and she was very knowledgeable about her topic, and she was very passionate about it. But I think that, yeah, that, that's really worth watching uh, to see because that's like the the final coup card, you know, the final propaganda card. There it is. That's the uh, that's the card. Yeah. Okay. I will. I uh, that's a, that was apparently an American Experience uh, documentary. Um in 2015, and that yeah. is uh, looks like it's only like an hour. Yeah, I said it was like 70 minutes or something. It wasn't – it's not a feature. You know, it, it, it's definitely watchable, right. um, but it was very well – I thought it was very, very well done. And, of course, what I, the reason I brought it up is that she was able to interview a lot of people who were part of all that. Right. You know, they, were, they were still – a lot of the – some of the – I wouldn't say the most senior Vietnamese guys, but a lot of the um, – you know, they were – they might have been generals or colonels or, you know, people who were definitely part of that action were interviewable because they're still alive. Yeah. Well, that's uh, okay. So I'm, I, that's on my list. Uh, that'll probably be watched tonight. So good. Um, all right. Well, thank you for talking. Uh, get back to work. You're, you're, you're slacking off here. You need to, uh, you need to get these things done. So anyway, thanks yeah, a lot for coming on, Mark. I really appreciate your time. No problem, Bruce. Have okay. a good one. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I wanted to talk a little about block games, because I've said several times in various places that I don't like them. Then I got to chatting with one of my regular Twilight Struggle opponents, who asked me why I didn't like them. I answered, well, they often over-abstract too many things uh, in order just to fit into this block mechanic, that the things the blocks try to hide often aren't appropriate for the situation they're modeling, and that the blocks themselves homogenize otherwise interesting unit differences just so they can apply this block-pip mechanic. And he replied, oh, so you don't like bad block games then? And suddenly, I realized he had a point. So the first mission seemed to be to find good games that happen to use blocks and find out how they managed to do it and still use blocks. A short aside, though, to explain what I mean by block games. 
A friend of mine tried to call Lord of the Rings The Confrontation a block game, presumably because the unit identities were hidden. And then I was listening to Rally in the Valley, and those guys called Sekigahara a block game, probably because it has wooden blocks in it. Guess what? Neither one of those is a block game. Those are limited information games. Block games require two things. One is blocks that have a blank side to hide the information on the other side. And the other is that these blocks are rotated to reflect changing unit strengths. This is what makes a block game. Just having blocks as pieces in a game doesn't make it a block game, or diplomacy would be a block game because the original classic pieces were wooden blocks. That's also why the Commands and Colors series are not block games. Nope. The blocks hide new information because they're double-sided, and the blocks aren't rotated to reflect unit losses. You just remove blocks, and so strengths are always visible to everybody. The Commands and Colors series is just a light war game series with wooden counters. You could make the pieces out of cardboard and also make them single-sided and lay them flat, and it would make zero functional difference. Oh, if you plan to bring up that in my list of 10 best war games in Wild Weasel number 2, I referred to Sekigahara in passing as a block game, that was not technically correct. Uh, I will say I've spoken to the Grognard Council about it, and we have all agreed that I should be more careful with my terminology in the future. So, now that we know what a block game is and isn't, we can talk about what makes a good one. The main thing, I think, is the correlation between the level of deception the blocks allow and the level of information appropriate for the historical situation. This means that t a tactical block game that allows you to completely obfuscate the difference between infantry and tanks isn't using the blocks very well, because at tactical ranges, it's hard to drive tanks around in front of your opponent and not have him hear the engines, for example. There are ways of addressing this kind of thing indirectly, though. In War Stories Liberty Road, infantry can only move one hex. So if a block moves more than one hex, it must be a vehicle. No need for a specific loud engine rule. Which is good, because another thing that block games should do is keep a consistent level of abstraction between the game mechanics. Which is another way of saying that block games should avoid too much detail, because blocks themselves are pretty abstract representations in a wargaming context. So, layering a bunch of systems on top of a block game can rob it of the elegance it blo uh, that blocks inherently possess. And I'm thinking of War Stories Liberty Road again in this context, where you have to put different markers on the blocks themselves. I've always thought it was aesthetically suboptimal to mix things that look and feel as different as blocks and counters, and at least in cases where you have to put the counter on the block, because you have to take the counter off the rotate to rotate the block, you know, so on. But this doesn't mean that you can't put a lot of things into a block game, only that if you do, they have to fit together both mechanically and thematically. And that's tough. But Triumph and Tragedy, for example, is an excellent example of this kind of consistent game design, because it not only incorporates politics into a situation that would feel hollow without them, and I say that because the game is so abstract that if you just made it military, I think it would feel a little weak, but it does so in a way that is about as abstract as the combat system and makes you um, make the same kind of incremental choices in both. The combat system has blocks and pips, while the diplomacy system has cards and tokens, with the tokens taking the place of pips. This incremental decision-making is even present in how you buy cards, you have a certain number of production points, and then you have to decide how many cards to purchase from the investment deck as opposed to the action deck. Everything is a kind of pip, I guess. In this setting, having units be one of four strengths is perfectly logical and consistent. The fact that the technology system folds into this, again, by exploiting incremental card collection, means that the game is incredibly mechanically consistent. That's rare. The different economic pressures on the three major powers mean that each one of these will use the systems in different ways, making for a very thematically consistent treatment of the whole prelude and transition to war, as well as the war itself. 
And this is something I really appreciate in a game that can take six hours to play because it feels like a complete experience. But what do I mean by a complete experience? It means that I can see goals and objectives at the beginning of the game and follow them through both the diplomatic and military spheres while not suddenly shifting gears or introducing different mechanics. I could follow the card collection and resource allocation model out to various points without having to account for a bunch of intermediate game states or shifts. I think this is what you need in a strategic level game that you're going to make into a single day's sitting. Some games can seem longer than they are because you keep having to change gears in how you think about them. And Triumph and Tragedy gives you a clear view the whole way through, and I really like that. On an informational level, Triumph and Tragedy hides just about as much information as you would think appropriate in a game about World War II. You can see unit buildups, but not necessarily what kind until the fighting starts, and then you have a pretty good idea. As the fighting ebbs, you can lose track of what's where, kind of like the Germans were fooled by Patton's Phantom Army before D-Day. Ships at sea are going to be found because well, you can't hide battleships very well, even when you're trying to sneak them out of Norwegian fjords. Um, I think that the optimal scale for blocks in terms of limited intelligence is the operational level, actually. And, uh, incidentally, but not coincidentally, the finest example of this is Rommel in the Desert by this exact same designer. Uh, but the theater level works pretty well also. So, with consistent mechanics and appropriate abstraction, what's left? Well, how does the combat fit? While I'm not a big fan of the bag of dice mechanic, I think it works pretty well here, especially when combined with the tech advances. The different types of arms fire in sequence, and the techs either change the sequence or increase their effectiveness. The atomic bomb, of course, is the ultimate tech. And even then, it's governed by a simple rule. If you have the bomb, you have to have planes within a range of an enemy capital. If you do that, you win. I'll concede for simplicity that the game doesn't require you to have bombers. So, if you ask me what makes a good block game, I'd say that hitting the points mentioned above will get you a long way. I like Triumph and Tragedy a lot, and suggest you try it. You can read more of my thoughts on the game at wargamespace.com. And that's it for this time. On the next Wild Weasel? Hmm, I'm not sure. Maybe we'll talk about some old war games. And talk to some new hobby voices. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more wargaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel number 12.